this morning in chapel and continue our series on the on worshiping God and most recently on the attributes of God. And I look forward to it except for one thing. It means I had to put a tie on today. Tough call, right? In John's messages on the on worshiping God, he mentioned a great theologian by the name of Stephen Charnock. That very, very thick volume on the attributes of God that he mentions that he reads on a regular basis. And being one of his many disciples, I also happen to have a copy of that great volume. I would like to begin our message this morning by reading to you a quote from it, from Stephen Charnock's The Attributes of God. And as I do, I would just ask you to think, to answer in your own mind the question, which attribute is he talking about? As I read this, answer the question, which attribute is Stephen Charnock referring to? Though we conceive him infinite in majesty, infinite in essence, eternal in duration, mighty in power, and wise and immutable in his counsels, merciful in his proceedings with men and whatsoever other perfections may dignify so sovereign a being, Yet if we conceive him destitute of his excellent perfection and imagine him possessed with the least element of evil, we make him but an infinite monster and prostitute those perfections we ascribed to him before. We rather own him a devil than a god. The attribute we'll look at this morning is the holiness of God. God is infinite in so many different ways, infinite in power, infinite in knowledge, infinite in understanding. And if all of those infinite attributes are not guided and directed and maintained by the one attribute of holiness, he is not a God that we should follow and serve and trust. He would be the most diabolical monster the world had ever seen. But instead, Scripture calls him the Holy One, the Holy One of Jacob, the Holy One of Israel. The attribute of holiness is more often affixed to his name than any other attribute. It is never the mercy one or the merciful one or the forgiving one. It is most often the Holy One. The attribute of God's holiness is the only attribute of all the attributes that is ever said three times in a row. Isaiah 6, 3. The seraphim, the song of the seraphim, they call it, the tritagion. They sit there in the throne room and they sing back and forth to each other, holy, holy, holy. That is the only attribute of God that is ever said that way. It's a linguistic tool of the Hebrew language and it's used to add emphasis. For you and I, we would put it in bold caps. We would underline it. We would highlight it. Holy, holy, holy. The four beasts in Revelation 4 rest not day and night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. Never is it repeated eternal, eternal, eternal. Faithful, faithful, faithful. Loving, loving, loving. Only and always holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is the attribute he singles out by which he would swear or give assurance of his promise. When he is trying to convince David and reassure David that God will work an eternal plan of redemption through David and his seed, he says, I have sworn by my holiness, 
I will not lie to David. In Amos 4.2, when he assures the people of his coming judgment upon the nation of Israel, he says again, the Lord God has sworn, not by his power, not by his wisdom, but by his holiness. He gives his holiness to pledge for the assurance of his promise. When a person swears, they swear by something greater than themselves. If you and I were to try to give someone assurance, we would say, what? I I swear to God. I promise. I swear to God. I'm telling the truth. And so in that, we give assurance by calling to something greater than ourselves. There is nothing greater than God. So he has no one greater than himself to swear by. So he swears by the attribute which is most encompassing, the highest, the best, the truest of all of his attributes, which is his holiness. It is also that attribute which is called to make him beautiful. We learned that God is a spirit, that he does not have a physical being, and yet the Bible often speaks of him as having a physical being, so that we can understand that. The attribute of power is described in his hand and his arm. The attribute of his omniscience in his eye, and his eye searches to and fro. The attribute of his mercy is described in the bowels, that he has compassion on people. The attribute of his eternality would describe his duration forever and ever and ever. But it is the attribute of his holiness whereby he is called beautiful. Beautiful. God is beautiful in his holiness. Psalm 27.4, David desires to behold the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his holy temple. So we think of the holiness of God. Without it, God is a monster. The holiness of God, that only attribute by which it comes three times in a row, holy, holy, holy. The attribute by which he swears or promises or reassures you that he will fulfill what he has said to you because he is holy. And that attribute which describes his beauty. A definition for the word holy, it comes from a Hebrew word. The word to be holy in our English just means simply to cut or to separate. It just means to cut or to separate. And the fundamental idea is that of a position or relationship existing between God and some person or thing. When we say that God is holy, we say that God is separate, that he is distinct, that he is apart from people or things. And this morning we'll look at the holiness of God from two basic perspectives. The first, his ethical holiness. His ethical holiness. And the second, his majestic holiness. And in so doing, we'll hope to focus on four responses that we should have from the holiness of God. Four responses. We should, one, fear him. Two, we should trust him. Three, emulate him. And lastly, adore him but we don't move into this time together without a sense of expressing our inadequacy A.W. Tozer in his book The Knowledge of the Holy says it this way neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. 
He says we cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising that concept to the highest degree we're capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. We may fear God's power, admire His wisdom, but His holiness we cannot even imagine. And he notes, only the spirit of the Holy One, only the Holy Spirit, can impart to the human spirit the knowledge of the Holy. And in recognition of that, I would like us to pause for a word of prayer. And ask the Holy Spirit to show us things about that attribute, the holiness of God, that we have not seen before. Father, as a group of people, we come before you acknowledging our dependence upon your spirit and our inadequacy innately to understand you. But we understand from your word that you do desire that we know about you and that you have given us the spirit of God to make known to us the thoughts of God. And so we, in respect for you and for who you are, would pause and ask you to be active in this hour and to show us something of yourself that we might glorify you. In your name, Jesus. An article in Time magazine caught my eye. It was about a man living in the state of Maryland several years ago, arrested on the count of drunken and disorderly conduct. Drunken and disorderly, his neighbors called the police. The police came and the man began to cuss and blaspheme and kick and punch and pull until finally he was able to be arrested and brought to the courtroom some weeks later. And the judge, in reviewing the case, desired not only to fine and punish the man for his drunken and disorderly conduct, but also for his unruly conduct. And finding no other way to do it, he resurrected an old law which was on the state, uh, the, the books of the state of Maryland, which prohibited public blasphemy. And because he had taken the name of the Lord in vain during the procedure of his arrest, he qualified. And so the judge levied this. For drunken and disorderly conduct, 30 days in prison and a $100 fine. And then adding to that, by virtue of his penalty for blasphemy, he was able to add the maximum for that, which was another 30 days in prison and another $100, bringing the total 60 days and $200. I don't know about you, but when I first read that, it shocked me. I said to myself, my goodness, that's a little stringent. I mean, the drunken and disorderly understand. Give the man 30 days and $100. That's, you know, he could kill someone, right? Being drunken and disorderly. But 30 days, 30 long days out of work, away from your family, stuck in a jail, and a $100 fine for slip of the tongue? For saying something about God that was not nice? The magazine felt the same way, and they went on to berate the judge in the state of Maryland and the whole concept that America would even allow such a law to be on our books, such a grossly antiquated law, which prohibits public blasphemy even be on our books. Further, that such an overburdening and severe punishment of 30 days in jail and a $100 fine should be assessed for that. What's your reaction to that? Amen, huh? Preach it, brother. 
You're the judge for a moment. Someone is brought into your court who's practicing idolatry. Maybe uh, they have a little shrine there in the house and they worship it. They're not hurting anybody. What's your verdict? And what's your penalty? Keep that in mind for a minute. The next person comes into your courtroom. This person is guilty of striking and cursing his parent. Verdict. What's his penalty? Next person comes into your courtroom. Guilty of divorcing his marriage partner or her marriage partner on the grounds of irreconcilable differences. Verdict. Penalty. Next person comes into your courtroom guilty of committing acts of homosexuality between consenting adults. AIDS is not an issue here. Just pure, pure, just straight homosexuality. Sorry. The last person before your long and hectic day who comes into your courtroom is a person guilty of practicing witchcraft. Maybe it's Stevie Nicks. They bring her in. She's guilty of practicing witchcraft. What's your penalty? Open your Bibles with me for just a minute to Leviticus chapter 10. had two sons. Their names were Nadab and Abihu. And it says in verse 1 that they took the sons, excuse me, they took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, they placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Apparently the coals were strange coals. They had not been taken from the brazen altar, which would be described for them in Leviticus 6. That was the proper altar from which they should have gotten their coals. And in their youthfulness, they apparently grabbed some other coals and stuck those in their fire pan and went in and tried to worship the Lord. Verse 2, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Look at the end of verse 3. Do you see there? So Aaron therefore kept silent. Apparently upon the death of his two sons, Aaron came to Moses and said, Moses, Moses, let's have a chat. These are my two boys. These were my two boys. They're young. They're inexperienced. They're trying. They were good boys. And after all, boys will be boys. I mean, don't you think that fire and death immediately on the spot is a little harsh? A little rough? Look at Moses' response. Then Moses said to Aaron... It is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. Moses is actually saying, Aaron, you're asking the wrong question. Aaron, the question isn't, has, that, has God been too severe in his dealings with your son? You know the question that you should have, having seen this happen to your sons? You should come to God and say, God, why am I still alive? 
What qualifies me to be alive? I'm no different. My life is full of sin. I have violated your holiness. The question isn't, God, you've been too severe on them. The immediate question is, my God, why am I still allowed to exist in light of your holiness? One theologian puts it this way. What constitutes the most mysterious aspect of the mystery of sin and the holiness of God is not that the, that the sinner deserves to die, but rather that the sinner, in the average situation, continues to exist. Back to your verdict. Back to your courtroom. Let me read you just a partial list of those sins for which God demands capital punishment in the Old Testament. Raping a woman. Prostitution of a virgin. Kidnapping. Murder. Desecration of a sacrificial offering. Nadab and Abihu. Violation of the Sabbath. Incest. Bestiality. Child sacrifice, blasphemy, striking or cursing a parent, practices of idolatry, unlawful divorce, acts of homosexuality, practicing witchcraft. You died in the Old Testament if you did those things. Why are we so far off the mark? Why does the article bother us? Why is there a twinge when we read a little bit about Nadab and Abihu that that might have been a little severe? Ananias and Sapphira. The horrible reality is that we can't explain it away that it was just the Old Testament. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, I do not change. He's the same God today that He was yesterday. James 1.17, There is no variation or shifting shadow. Did you know that Jesus spoke more in the New Testament about hell, the wrath of God, eternal damnation, burning fires of Gehenna, and the absolute certainty of hell than he ever spoke of heaven? Jesus, the God of love. Jesus, the Savior of the world, spoke more of hell and damnation and the wrath of God in light of God's holiness than he ever spoke about heaven. You see, we have learned to live with unholiness, haven't we? We're comfortable with it. There is, a, there is a level of shock, I guess, in the nation today when the possibility that the president and his men have concealed arms dealings. There is some element of shock that religious leaders in America today might not be what they say they are. But on the average, on the whole, we have learned to live with unholiness. We're quite accustomed to it. We're not shocked or abhorred when we find that sin in the politicians, the police officers, the merchants, our friends, or even ourselves. Sinfulness is the norm. Holiness, the radical exception. In fact, so accustomed to Sinfulness are we, and the grace of God which allows us to continue to exist even though we have just sinned, that when God does something like He does 
in Leviticus 10 and he does what ought to be done and he kills the violator, we call him unjust. When God acts justly in giving man their just due, we call him somehow unjust. So accustomed to God's grace, and so do we take it for granted that when he gives us what is justice, we don't even recognize it as justice. We recognize it as injustice. Revelation 15.4 says, Who shall not fear thee, O God? And glorify thy name, for thou art holy. Who shall not fear thee? The New Testament says much about fear as a motivation for the New Testament Christian. We tend not to teach on that. We tend to focus on God's grace and on his love. The Bible tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, I persuade men in the fear of God, knowing that I will one day, and this is a paraphrase, stand before him and give account for what I have done. The New Testament puts in paradox, in tension, the fact that God is forgiving and God is love and it's Abba Father and you're friends with Jesus. Yes, that is taught. But at the same time, the Bible and the New Testament teaches that we are to fear him because he is holy. There is a reverence to our God. That is why when we begin to pray, there is a sense in our own being that we just simply must confess. Isn't it difficult for you just to run right out into prayer without dealing with who you are and your inadequacies, your failures. So we learn, first of all, from the holiness of God, that we are to fear Him. To fear Him. The shocking reality is this. Apart from the grace of God, which is actively present in this room at this moment... Apart from the grace of God, actively moving in this room at this moment, each and every one of us would die. The holiness of God. Secondly, because God is holy, we can trust Him. We can trust Him. Ever ask yourself the question, where in the world did sin come from? I mean, if God is holy, and if God is sovereign, and if God is all-powerful, and if God is all-knowing, then how come there's sin in the world? Doesn't that somehow mean it's His fault? I mean, if He's all those things, isn't He ultimately responsible for that? We begin to answer, no, 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 God's not, God's not responsible for that. Don't you remember Genesis 1? God created the heavens and the earth, and when he had finished all that, he said it was good. He created Adam good, with the ability to stay good. There was no evil. And I say to you, but, but he knew, didn't he? Didn't he know before he made it that way that that wasn't going to work? And that eventually sin would come and that eventually millions and millions and billions and billions of people 
would die in their sin and burn forever and ever in hell? What do you mean God is holy? How can God be holy? I'm having difficulty reconciling the holiness of God that He is cut apart and separate from anything that is sin with what I perceive to be reality today in the world. If He created it, it was His idea. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. How come it came out like that if He's truly holy? Have you ever been challenged like that? Have you ever thought those questions in your own mind? Yeah, so have I. Another person might answer. You see, it was God's desire that men should be able to choose Him and to love Him and to have a voluntary choice. The last thing we would want is a bunch of human beings like robots walking around loving God because we have to. It's programmed. There's no choice. And I say to that, you mean then for the sake of those who would choose God or love God, millions and millions and millions and billions of people are going to burn forever? doesn't add up in my thinking. I'm sorry, I don't buy that. Another person might respond, you see, if it were not for sin, if we were all perfect forever, then we would never have even known of His mercy. We would never have learned of His grace. We would never have learned of His self-sacrificing love. And so in order to know the fullness of God... And the fullness of God includes mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. And if sin had never entered the world, you would not know that. You would be unable to know that because you wouldn't have anything to learn it by. Because we'd all be perfect in mercy and grace and love and self-sacrifice and forgiveness. All of these wonderful attributes of God would have no way for you to learn about them. And so God allows sin so that you and I can learn about Him. Now, I believe that's true, because I believe the Bible teaches that. Romans chapter 9. But it still bothers me. I still have a difficulty reconciling His holiness with what I perceive to be reality today in the world. Millions of people, billions of people think alive today who will go to hell. And that's just in our lifetime. Burning forever and ever and ever. We live then. How do we respond? I think we find an answer in the book of Habakkuk. Maybe you'd turn there with me. The book of Habakkuk. Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. The crispy portion of your Old Testament. <coughs> Habakkuk had the same problem you and I have. It's one of the things I like so much about the Bible. It deals with real problems. He was speaking to the land of Judah. Jehoiakim was the king. Jeremiah had said of Jehoiakim that his eyes and his heart are intent only upon dishonest gain, shedding innocent blood, practicing oppression and extortion. Jehoiakim was a horrible king, and Judah was a wretched place at this time in their history. They were sinful people. And this righteous prophet Habakkuk in verse 2 says of chapter 1, How long will I call for help, and thou wilt not hear? I cry out to thee, violence is going on, yet you do not save. Why dost thou make me see iniquity, and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me, strife exists. 
Contention arises, therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. You see what he's saying? He's saying what we're saying. He's saying, how long, God, will I ask you to answer this question and you'll not tell me the answer? I cannot reconcile the fact that all of Judah is perverted under the leadership of Jehoiakim and they live a sinful, ungodly life. And you do not do something about it. How can this be? I cannot reconcile your holiness with the present situation. So he asks that question and God answers it. In verse 6, he says, Behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, this fierce people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. And he goes on to describe this incredible Chaldean army which is just to the north. And he says, Habakkuk, relax. I am going to do something. I am a holy God. I will respond to this sin. I am bringing the Chaldeans and they will wipe out Judah and take them into deportation. And you know that to be 605, Daniel, etc., etc., Nebuchadnezzar. And he did it. But rather than resolving the prophet's question, he only intensified it. Now he's really bothered. He says, God, now it doesn't make any sense at all. Look at verse 13 of chapter 1. He says, thine eyes are too pure to approve evil. Thou canst not look on wickedness with favor. Look quick up at verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? He's still battling the issue of God's holiness. He still can't understand. And the reason is in verse 13, the middle of the verse. Why dost thou look with favor on those who deal treacherously? And why art thou silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't understand this now, Lord. First of all, Judah's in a horrible mess and there's sin and you need to come and judge. And you say you're going to be holy by bringing the Chaldeans. But the Chaldeans are more unrighteous and more ungodly and more sinful and separated even further from you than the Judeans. So you're telling me you're going to bring a more unrighteous, ungodly people to wipe out the less sinful people? It just doesn't make any sense. That's not holiness. How could you use the ungodly heathens, Chaldeans, to come and wipe out your chosen people? They're more sinful than we are. And now he's just his circuits are gone. He's, he's at the end of his rope. I don't understand, God. I, am, I cannot rectify the situation and the circumstances of the world in light of who you say you are. Your holiness, it does not add up. God gives him one final answer which satisfies him. And it is the answer that shall satisfy us. Verse 4 in chapter 2. Behold, as the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by faith. There it is. There's your answer. The righteous shall live by faith. What he is saying is, you will live in fellowship with me by your faith, not your reason. You want to understand everything about me. You want to know and be able to comprehend all that I am and all that I do and all that I say. But you are finite and I am infinite, God says. 
And so when the infinite touches the finite, it, things don't always come clear. And we are left to live by faith. But that's not unusual for us. There's a lot of things you don't understand about God. Or about your Christian life. Who wrote the Bible? God or man? Yes. Right? Over and over and over again, the Word of God is called the Word of God. And the Lord said, and God said, and the Lord said, and God said. And yet over and over and over again, we can see that Paul said it. Moses said it. And, not, it didn't, and God did not just dictate through these men. They were not like little secretaries just saying, okay, I got that part. Oh, could you repeat that line? Okay, I got that part. I got that part. Okay, keep going. I'm ready. Okay, that's good. I got you. Could you proofread this, please? You know, that's not how it worked. As you read through the Bible, you'll see Moses and his personality and his style and his historical understanding of the situation revealed as he wrote the first five books of the Bible. You'll see a completely different literary style, a completely different history, a completely different personality in Paul's writings. Paul wrote the book of Philippians, but God wrote the book of Philippians. Do you understand that? Neither do I. You can't. It's impossible to understand that. That's one of the tensions that God puts us in in the Christian life. <laughs> That's just one of the many places where the infinite touches the finite and it just doesn't work. Tilt. I can't comprehend that. Who lives your Christian life? You or the Holy Spirit? Yes. I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached I should disqualify myself. I live my Christian life. I work hard. I practice self-discipline. I make choices. I'm responsible for those choices. Right? I'm crucified with Christ. Right? Nevertheless, no longer I live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. If you walk by the Spirit, you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Yours is a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led life, and it's Christ's life in you that you live. Do you understand that? Neither do I. Those are tensions. Those are things about God which we simply do not understand. But you know what I do know? And as I wrestled with this some years ago, thinking through why does sin exist and really becoming just consumed with the thought, reading everything I could find, trying to figure out what happened and why did it go this way and how could God be holy and sin still exist? I came across some verses that settled it. Job 34.10 Far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. That's pretty straight. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness. And from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. You see, the Bible plainly, openly, unadulteratedly, unqualified says he is not guilty or responsible for sin. It does not impugn his holiness. Deuteronomy 32.4, the rock he is called. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is he. 
like a drink of cool water in a desert are these verses. As you really begin to struggle with the issue. God has told you that He is not unholy, that He is holy, and that everything He has done is consistent with that holiness. Now, the fact that you and I cannot understand it does not mean that we call into question His holiness. Is that fair? (coughs) Tremendous assurance here. We can trust this God. I have some good friends who have gone through several trials in trying to have a baby. In fact, it was my responsibility some years ago to bury their fourth attempt at a child who was born prematurely and died. This couple would make the greatest parents God has ever seen. I believe that. There is no sin in their life that would merit that to our knowledge. We have talked intimately. And yet here, this couple, and particularly I'm thinking of the father in the delivery room with this premature baby, comes out and he holds this little thing in his hand and watches it die. For an hour it took. And he spent that little time with his little son. And you know, there is at times in their, their thinking the question... God holy is God just why would he do this to me and then they say though it does not make sense to me though I cannot add it up though it hurts me deeply I will not question the character of my God Because my God has propositionally told me in Scripture that He is holy. And that all of His works are righteous. That none of His works are unrighteousness. And though I cannot understand it for the life of me, the righteous shall live by faith. That's part of our Christianity, you guys. Ours is not the reason why, but to do or die we are finite we are not infinite and there's assurance in that we can trust God in his holiness number three because God is holy we are to emulate him be like him be holy and for the longest time I was beat over the head with this verse as probably you have been be ye holy for I am holy Whenever I was out of line, beat on the head, be ye holy, for he is holy. And I suppose that's a legitimate use for the verse. But I discovered something, and something came clear even through one of Dr. MacArthur's messages and then through my own study. That shed a whole new light on the verse. Be ye holy, for I am holy. God is called the blessed God. Mark 14. God, again, in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1.11 is called the blessed God. God is said to be blessed. That doesn't mean people give him wonderful things. That means that he is blessed. He has inner happiness. He is at peace with himself. He is completely at joy. He is completely blessed. Do you know why? Because he's holy. Had God the least spot upon his purity, 
the least spot of sin upon his purity, it would render him as miserable in the midst of his infinite sufficiency as iniquity renders a man in the misery of his sin. If there were any sin in God, he would not be blessed in the sense of his inner peace and disposition and well-being. And John mentioned that when he said, the greatest feeling of all is what? The absence of guilt. There is no greater feeling. True? Think of it. Nothing ever feels as good as the absence of guilt. When you are right with God, when you are living the way He wants you to live, nothing feels as good. No thrill. No activity. Nothing can come close. When God calls us to be holy, when God says, be ye holy for I am holy, do you know what He's saying? Experience the wonderful blessedness of the absence of guilt. I hunger for that. I hate it when I sin. For many reasons, but one and probably most dear to me is because it just feels so guilty. (laughs) And all your strength and all your vitality and all your energy, it's gone. And then as you begin to confess... And as you begin to straighten your life back out, and as you begin to live for God, it floods back in like somebody opened the gates in a dam, and you feel blessed. The absence of guilt. So, we have seen the ethical holiness of God. God is separate and distinct from anything that is sin. It is His moral excellency. The ethical holiness of God, that perfection of God in which he maintains his own moral excellence, abhors sin, and calls for purity in his moral creatures. God is holy not because he has chosen to conform himself to some standard of holiness. God is the standard of holiness. Isn't that interesting? God is not up in heaven saying, boy, I'd really like to go sin, but i got to be holy today because I'm God. That's not what God is saying. God is not propped up into holiness. God is not bound to holiness by something. That is what He is. He is holy. He wants to be holy. That's the only thing He's ever wanted to be is holy. God is holy. Ethically holy. Completely separate and distinct from sin. Lastly, just quickly, the majestic holiness of God. Again, it speaks of a fundamental relationship of separation between God. And this time, not sin, but His creation. God is utterly, totally distinct from all His creatures. He is different and unique from anything in creation. He exalted above creation. He is transcendent. He is other. That's why the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven, above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below the earth. To make an idol is to say that while God is holy, He is separate, He is distinct from any part of creation. To make an idol is to say He's not separate, He's not distinct, He's not transcendent, He's not unique, He's one of us. And so we threaten with idolatry His holiness. But I think too, when you try to grapple with the fact that God is totally distinct and separate from us, 
walking over here, Harry and I were coming together. We'd had a time in prayer, and we were walking along, and we saw some ants along the ground. This little string of ants. And it caught my attention. I called Harry back. I said, look at these ants. What do you think of these ants? And he kind of looked at me like, huh? What do you mean, what do I think of these ants? I said, what do you think of these ants? He said, do you mean like the verse, consider the ant? And I said, no, what do you think of these ants? And he was lost because I was pretty confusing. But in my mind, I was thinking about the absolute, total transcendence of a holy God who is separate and distinct. And I'm looking at these ants and I'm feeling pretty transcendent and distinct and other than these ants. Huh? Like that's an ant. We killed several just walking by the first time. I am totally distinct and separate from that ant. I have nothing to do with that. Praise God. And I realized their little world, you know, this long string of little ants. Well, they're going to go back somewhere in a hole, and then there's going to be like swarms of them. And I want nothing to do with them. Think for a moment. The infinite God, holy in that He is transcendent and majestic and above and beyond us. And he looks down upon the earth and he sees something totally different and totally distinct from himself, humans. Hmm. And as distinct and as different and as far away as I am from the ant, he is infinitely further from me. Even though I've been created in his likeness. God is other. He's transcendent. He's unique. He is not a part of creation. And I think what it meant for him to take on the form of an ant. I mean, think of it. Harry, I can't make chapel today. I have a burden to reach these ants. They're lost. They need help. And so I let go the form that I have as a human. And I, I am incarnated into the form of an ant. And now there I am. Running around along the ground. And I find that I am not well received by these ants. As a matter of fact, I'm despised by them. I am a reproach in their presence. John 15:25 says that I am hated, <coughs> excuse me, without cause. I've done nothing wrong, but they hate me. In fact, they hate me so much that I have come to help them and to relieve them from their plight that they are not satisfied until they have killed me. And so they're in their little ant world, they hook me to a cross, and I die for them. It's a stunning thought, isn't it? When we think of God's holiness, we are not only saying that He is ethically pure, He is moral, He is right, He is just, there is no sin. We are also saying in His holiness that He is separate and distinct, He is apart from creation. And when I consider the fact of my own sin... And then I think of the fact that a God so separate and so distinct that I can't even comprehend and my closest analogy is that of an ant. And yet that God would take on the form of human flesh, animated dust, the living God. For one purpose, to save me and to forgive me for my violation of his ethical holiness. I come away with the conclusion... That I adore him. He is worthy of my praise. So the holiness of God. Our response is one to fear him. Two to trust him.
three, to emulate Him. And lastly, to adore Him. Let's have a word of prayer.